0: But we're going to come today to God's Word, and I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, and we will continue our study in uh, this amazing letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, We have had a good start uh, in chapter 1, and we head now to to chapter 2. You have your Bibles in front of you. Many of you were able to access the sermon notes that are there online. Hopefully, that would be most of you. You have those, you can find those you'll also notice this week that I gave you community group notes because there are a couple of our groups that are uh, beginning to meet now electronically others no doubt will soon, but uh, this is a, a way to serve all of you who are beginning to get together in that way. but as your Bibles are open and we prepare to come to god's word I, I want to I want to read for, for you a portion from the Heidelberg catechism. Realize that many of us are not necessarily familiar with uh, the various catechisms that have been part of the life of the church now for hundreds of years, but the Heidelberg Catechism, about 500 years old or so, uh, has a, a rich history to it. It's made up of 129 questions and answers following the, the probably the normal approach of a catechism, where Uh, A question is asked, and then an answer or response is given. The Heidelberg Catechism is divided up into 52 sections, one for for each Sunday of the year. And at the beginning of each year, if a church is to follow the catechism or you as an individual, this is how you would begin uh, day one, Lord's Day One, in a year. And I think it's appropriate for our text and for our setting today as a congregation So the catechism asks this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And then the answer given is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. There's a a powerful statement of our confidence in God and his keeping us, regardless of what things happen in our lives. I want to pray for us, and using that as a springboard, we'll come to our text today as we think together about Christ as the center of Christianity, Uh, not just a statement or a doctrinal position, but Christ and his role in our life in, in faith. But pray with me, please, as we come to God's word. Our Father, it is with great joy that we open the Word of God together as a congregation, separated, of course, physically uh, in these days for, for good reason, and yet gathered together around the Word of God in all different places around our community and country and the world. And how good to be united around that which should unite us the most, uh, the truth of God, the presence of God, all of this led by the Spirit of God. And so our Father, I pray that you would you would help us each in our in our roles. Uh, from, from my mine here is, is one who presents the Word of God and, and all who, who listen and respond and worship together. Our Father, unite us even but through distance today, I pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen. So if you look at your sermon notes, you see a bit of review about where we have been. And a comment about today's text, as, as we're going to be looking at it, Colossians 2, 1-5, through 5, uh, is our main text today, Colossians 2, 1-5. through 5. And as we read God's Word, I want to begin back in chapter 1, verse 24, in the text that Pastor Ben led us through last week. And the reason I want to do that is because la- that text last week and today's share a lot of common themes, and I want us to see how those themes continue and then are amplified in our text today. So I begin at Colossians 1, verse 24, as together we look at the word of God. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And there we'll stop our reading in God's word. Now, I trust that you noticed as I read uh, the great interplay of themes between the latter part of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. But I I want to, for a moment, before we delve into the text, I want to focus your attention on verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 because I want you to see what's going on in the text as Paul's writing this letter to the church at Colossae from from jail. Of course, this is one of the prison epistles. But he says in chapter 2, verse 4, I say this to you so that no one can delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, what he's writing is for the protection and good of those who are his audience. He says, I'm writing this to protect you, to, to keep you from being deluded with these other arguments. So whatever he's saying in the text is being written to that end. It is there to protect them. It's to guard them from false teaching. Now, the way this, this letter is laid out uh, from the beginning uh, all the way to, uh, through today's text This is kind of laying the groundwork. We're going to see when we step back into Colossians in a couple of weeks, starting at chapter two, verse six, Paul is then stepping into the main argument of the book. There are some warnings, there's some reminders, there's some rebuttals of false teachers that he's gonna uh, embrace here very shortly. But all all of this preceding is laying the groundwork. And of course, he's pointed us to Christ. He's talked about the struggles that are his. He's prayed for these folks but all of this is for the goal presented in chapter two, verse four. I'm telling you these things for your good. I'm telling you these things so that you you will not be led astray by the arguments of others. So whatever he's saying is to that end. That's his purpose in writing. So you come now to our, to our text. And if you notice on your sermon notes, uh, hopefully you have those in front of you. Uh, I'm gonna talk today under two headings. First of all, gospel ministry, often involves struggle, and is always worthwhile. That's a theme that we we saw last week with Pastor Ben, and it continues in today's text. Gospel ministry often involves struggle and is always worthwhile. So in often and in always. And I I want you to see both of those played out in the text. Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Again, in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. And then in today's text, chapter 2, verse 1, he continues this. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And then he talks about the the, the focus of that struggle. But he is not hiding the fact that, that the ministry that God has called him to carry out has teeth to it. It hurts. It's painful. It involves struggle and effort and energy. And uh, Paul has not kept that a secret in other in other places. Sometimes I think we would think that that Paul or others should kind of play down. Oh, the price is not that big a deal. Paul really doesn't do that. He takes time to say, "Hey, this is hard work." Uh, the gospel goes forward with struggle. I don't think he's doing that as a matter of pride. It's a matter of lifting up the gospel, really, to say, this is so worthwhile. Communicating the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, it is so worthwhile. I will pay the price. I'll pay any price to see that it goes forward. Now, on your sermon notes, there are several things I'd like to think through uh, with you on this under this theme. I mentioned here, first of all, that Paul is a capital A apostle. And if you've heard us address this before, you know that as I understand the New Testament, uh, I see there a group of apostles who were a unique group, a closed group who had seen the risen Savior, Paul, one of them, uh, the disciples, of course, and then Paul is added, I think, to 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 that group. But I call them capital A apostles, those through whom God gave us revelation and who were those pioneers of the faith upon which the church of Christ was built. Now that marks him in a in a special role, uh, as contrasted to what I would call small a apostles, where the term apostle is used in the New Testament. It is often used of those who are sent, and I think it could also apply today. Uh, in terms of that missionary gift or those who go to other places, maybe to unreached people groups or uncharted territories, I think of them as small a apostles, not those through whom God speaks the way he did through the capital A apostles. But that just is a little way of, of how I think it's helpful to think about the New Testament. Now, on your study notes, you notice that Paul as a capital A apostle was called to suffer And indeed, he was. That was from the very beginning as Paul came to Christ there uh, on the Damascus Road uh, and and met the risen Christ. And as God sent Ananias to minister to Paul, uh, then called Saul, you remember the words of God to Ananias in the book of Acts, saying, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So from the very beginning, before Saul or Paul even knew what was in store for him, God had already marked out for him a, a journey that would come with, with a cost. And of course, Paul talks about that later. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 8-11, a text that we've turned to a few times recently where the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of, of the pain and the sorrow we, we despaired of life itself. And I want you to know about that. And then he says later in that text, and I want you to help us. Help us by your prayers. And he highlights the importance of the prayers of God's people in seeing the gospel go forward. And then, of course, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul chronicles uh, the the ways in which he suffers for the gospel, shipwrecked, beaten, uh, the the burdens of the church, uh, the suffering that was his for the cause of Christ, that capital A Apostle. Now, on your study notes, now, I, I, I want to just to take that a step further with you. So in the text, Paul is called to to suffer, to struggle, to see the gospel go forward. Well, since the time of the Apostle Paul, I think it's important to note that the gospel routinely goes forth in this world through suffering. It is not always uh, sent forward to the fields of the world, as Isaac Watts would say, on beds of ease, uh, indeed. Down through the ages, faithful men and women of God have paid incredible prices to take the word of God around the world, and we do well to recognize that. Uh, we, we stand on the shoulders of others who have paid dearly that that we, even here or wherever we are worshiping today, so that we could hear the gospel. Uh, I know that there are some in this congregation who have stories to be told of of those who shared Christ with them and somebody who shared Christ with them, and the price that was paid down through the ages, maybe not a big price of martyrdom and flames and fire and deprivation and things like that. Sometimes the the suffering that comes through faithful teaching uh, of of a person leading a group of children in Sunday school, where it gets a little old after a while, and you begin to feel unappreciated, and yet the gospel goes forward as faithful men and women uh carry that good news i put in your study notes here church history is full of painful but glorious stories of people painful but glorious uh, not idealizing suffering as though suffering in itself is something that's amazing but because it's communicating the gospel there is a glory to it. And of course, you find that fully uh, explained in Second Corinthians chapter four as Paul talks about the glory of the gospel ministry, the glory of Christ in the gospel. I wanna say this to all of us today, uh, congregation and so on around the world. Uh, if you would like to read stories of those faithful men and women who've gone before there are all kinds of them out there, missionary biographies. One book that you might find particularly helpful if you like this sort of thing or would benefit from it, the book is called From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. And it is, it is a wonderful chronicling of the story of the gospel going forward from the book of Acts all the way down to the modern era. And it tells a story of faithful men and women in all kinds of different countries and settings who were used by God in the history of the church, from Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya. Strongly recommend that book. You really should read it. Uh, read it to your kids. Uh, it's lengthy, but well worth the time. So then, Paul, as a capital A apostle, knew suffering. Down through the, through the ages, faithful men and women have carried the gospel, and there is some element of suffering. And then on your sermon notes, of course, I go that next step as well, in noting that for every Christian, living the Christian life can and does involve, in different measures, in different times, discomfort or even suffering for the cause of Christ. And we've preached about this before, and so I mention here again before us, sometimes we suffer simply from living in a fallen world. Sometimes we suffer from the sin of other people or from our own sin, Foolish choices. Sometimes, indeed, our suffering is from the wiles of the devil, as Paul will call it in Ephesians chapter 6. But I I mention here that sometimes our suffering is because we live in a fallen world. And I've been in this conversation even this week, as some of of our congregation have asked, uh, do you think that our present circumstances in the world today are caused by Satan? Or is this the book of Revelation playing out? And uh, is is the devil making everybody sick and so on? And, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly where we are in terms of uh, God's plan for the ages. I do look at the book of Revelation, and I see the type of plagues that are described there far worse than anything we're even touching today. Now, that's not to minimize our current concerns and health, health needs and so on, not to minimize that at all and the caution we must exercise but I'm simply saying, when you read the book of Revelation and you read about plagues that wipe out a quarter, for example, of the world's population, it uh, just dims what we're experiencing today. It's, it's rough today, I understand. But if you think this is rough, what if a quarter of the world died? Well, such things are in, uh, in store for the world, according to the book of Revelation, for those who reject Jesus Christ and are present on the earth when those things play out. Um, so, but, but I wanted to say this about it. Uh, I look at our current circumstances with a virus and I hate to give credit to Satan, uh, where it may not be his due. And we live in a fallen world full of illness and viruses and so on. That's been true since the garden of Eden. Um, some theologians speak about us living East of Eden, thinking of the direction to which God sent Adam and Eve. We're not in the garden of Eden. And ever since then, there've been thorns and thistles and illness and death. And in a sense, these things are not new. They may be newer in our lives, but they're certainly not new to the human race. So, uh, is this all caused by the devil? Well, I'll leave that in the hands of God. But I also think that living in a fallen world is capable of producing all manner of illness and discomfort. I guess I think about it like this every time I get a flat tire, I don't want to look around and say, I think the devil did this. Uh, every time it rains and I wanted it to sun or other types of difficulty and suffering. I hate to give Satan credit for what he didn't do. We do live in a fallen world, and before we, we panic and say, I think the devil's doing this to us, I tend to, to think, well, we, we, as a human race, we asked for this. Uh, that doesn't make it all better, I suppose. Uh, I mentioned on your sermon notes, though, I put it like this, sometimes, and perhaps that's too gentle of a word, sometimes our suffering is from the hands of a merciful God, who allows suffering for our good. And we have plumbed those depths in other settings. I think we could probably even say always any suffering we experience is meted out from the hands of a merciful God. God is never out of control. He always holds things in his hands. He holds us in his hands. And so to think of our suffering as coming from the hands of a merciful God, uh, I, I think is very good for us rather than to be afraid that God doesn't have this under control. And I look here for your reference to Second Corinthians 12, where Paul talks in those familiar verses about suffering that he endured. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan given to buffet him. But at the same time, it was from the hands of a merciful God. And the text explains that very well. That is that God knew Paul would have been a very proud man, because of the greatness of the revelations that God had given him. And so God very graciously, mercifully allowed him to suffer, not to ruin him, but to do him good, to humble him and to force him to keep his eyes on Christ at all times. And it is then, of course, Paul says, I prayed three times that God would deliver me from this. And each time God said, no, this is is good for you and that's the text where you read from God to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul's what says, Well, if that's the case, I will then glory. I will glory in this. So you should read that text as you think about suffering. So Paul then, in this context, Colossians chapter two, continues to talk about this struggle. Now, you look back with me at Colossians 2, and I want you to see what this struggle is about because he gives a focus. He gives a focus, and I, I want us to look at that Verses really verse 1 down to verse 3. Uh, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, for all who've not seen me face to face, that the ESV says. Here's the focal point. Here's what he's struggling about, that their hearts may be encouraged that's the main phrase if you're into grammar, all right? That's the main phrase, and all that then follows supports this, that their hearts may be encouraged. Paul could say, here's what I mean by that. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full, understa- uh, full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Paul of course is no stranger to long sentences. He does this often in his writings and uh, people wrestle with us to to look at clauses and dependent clauses and independent if you study grammar, you know what that's like. I have uh, painful memories, nightmares you could say of 8th grade English learning to diagram sentences, resisting it deeply. But nonetheless, uh, this this little package, uh, starting at verse two, has as its main frame, main point. I'm struggling so that their hearts may be encouraged. And he defined it. Here's what I mean. I want you to. I want your hearts to be encouraged. I, I pause there to say, it's interesting to me. I, I certain phrases trigger memories for me. I remember years ago hearing the words of an of a older pastor who on the eve, uh, uh, toward the end of his ministry, was asked, "Uh, looking back, what would you do differently? And one of his comments was, I think I would encourage God's people more rather than correcting them as much as I did. I think I would encourage them more. Uh, These are things to think about not only in a church setting, but perhaps in a home setting or raising kids. Uh, When we see things to be corrected, sometimes we spend so much time correcting. And Paul here, he has plenty to correct, and indeed he will. But in this context, he says, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, because I want to encourage you in a certain direction. That has a very different flavor to it than I want to correct you. I want to smack you once or twice and then head you in a different direction. You know, he wants to head him in a certain direction. He wants to give him a focal point. But he says, I want to encourage you here. And I, I like that, I like that. He says, "Oh, I'm struggling that your hearts would be encouraged now, being knit together in love, yes, describing relationship of Christian brother to Christian brother and sister and so on, to reach, not knit together in love, yeah, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and a knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ? I take that entire phrase to lead the way to that focus on Christ, which Paul has been laying out from the beginning of this book. I want your hearts to be encouraged, knit together in love, and I want you to, I want you to get your arms around the person of Christ and what He has done for us. He, he talks about this this full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Now. Mystery, of course, is a a word that we have also visited in this text. It's familiar in the New Testament, used very differently from how we use the term mystery. We think of Agatha Christie or all kinds of other mysteries. That's not the way it's used in the Bible. Routinely, the word mystery is used in, especially in the writings of Paul, to describe something that, that God had not previously revealed but now has been revealed. You find that in the book of Ephesians, other texts, and certainly here. And if you, you notice back in chapter one, again, these unifiers through the text, verse 26, there's a reference to the mystery hidden from ages and generations. And then again, this mystery, verse 27, the mystery that's described here is is the fact that in this, this, this body called the church, Christ having died on the cross for our sins, raised from the dead, Now we're moving from an emphasis on the nation of Israel alone to this new body called the church that is made up of Jew and Gentile, Jews in their Jewishness, Gentiles in their Gentileness without having to become Jews. This is a whole new thing. And of course, it's all over the New Testament. It's kind of mind blowing for the Jewish crowd. You mean the Gentiles get to be a part of us as the people of God and they don't have to become all Jewish? Well, yes, that's been the, a big discussion in the book of Galatians. It's a big deal in Ephesians and here as well. So there's this mystery. It's Christ. And interestingly, uh, verse 27, he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. I reference this on your study notes as a this amazing, uh, amazing truth. Uh, Mention it under the section called today's text. And of course, in the part we're looking at right now, Christ in you. Now, an important detail, we tend, as Americans, who love to think as individuals, we quickly think of this text talking about Christ in me, uh, as an individual, the hope of glory. And certainly, uh, New Testament teaching is that when we trust Christ as our Savior, by the presence of the Spirit of God, yes, he does come and dwell within us. But I don't think that's the emphasis in this text, because here, as is routine with Paul, Uh, He uses a plural, which is Christ in you, or you all. It's a plural. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. I believe that's the emphasis here that's so amazing to Paul. It's not just Christ in, in me as an individual, but Christ in us as a body. Jew and Gentile alike, different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different languages, and united in Christ. Christ is among us. He is in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. My second heading, of course, uh, following the emphasis on gospel ministry and struggle and worthwhileness. Uh, My second heading, gospel ministry, focuses on Christ, Christ himself. And I think that's the emphasis here in this text. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be knit together in love, and I want you to be able to see Christ in all of his beauty and all of his glory. On your sermon notes, again, I hope you have those in front of you. I put kind of a a sub-statement here that I I want to press on today. Gospel ministry focuses on Christ himself and then my subheading, not just on creeds or a doctrinal statement or a conservative way of life. And let me me just say, I am not uh, against creeds, doctrinal statements, or a conservative way of life. Huge fan. Begin today with a statement from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I like doctrinal statements. They're good. Uh, I like conservative ways of life, but the essence of Christianity is not those things. And sometimes when people think about Christianity or think about faith, they think of ascribing to a certain way of life or they think of of, of church as a doctrinal statement. So I'm gonna join that group. I'm gonna join that statement. And and while I appreciate those things in and of themselves, let me just say this. I want you to get it loud and clear the, the the essence of Christianity is a relationship with Christ. It isn't just signing on to a doctrinal statement or agreeing to live a certain way or voting a certain way that you perceive Christians are supposed to vote. It isn't that. It's about a living relationship with a living Savior. It's about Christ himself. We saw already in chapter 1 this amazing hymn starting in chapter 1, verse 15, and down to verses 18, 19, 20, as Paul talks in amazing, glowing, beautiful terms of the, the beauty of Christ. And then I would propose here again, he says, I want to encourage you, I want to see your hearts knit together in love, and I want you to reach for, I want you to arrive at this place where you see Christ as, as center of it all. He is God's mystery, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want this church, he would say, to be, to be focused on a living relationship with a living Savior. And I fear sometimes that it's, that it's possible to get so into the routine of life. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. Christianity becoming something you do. Uh, I get up, I read my Bible, I pray, take a walk, I do my devotions. We do, I do, I do, I do. I, you can forget. You can forget Jesus. And a real relationship with him that isn't just about checking off little boxes and and saying, well, I did my Bible reading. I'm not saying don't read your Bible, you should. But is the essence of your faith keeping up with your Bible reading plan? Or is it about a living relationship with a living savior? And I believe that as Paul is heading down this track and saying, I wanna protect you, remember verse four, I wanna protect you from those who would lead you astray. He begins, he's laying a foundation of, of, of focus on Christ, who is not just a doctrinal statement or a creed, but a living Savior who wants us to be with him and to know him and to love him. And I, I, I wonder that about us. It's interesting, as I have there, again, in front of you, hoping you have that, um, this emphasis has a, a profound impact on how we view discipleship and Christian education and every aspect of faith A book I am uh, just working on reading, I have a love-hate relationship with it, I would have to say. Uh, It's entitled You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And if by some odd chance this statement got to him, I'd want him to know, I love part of your book, and the other part of it drives me nuts. But the part that I really appreciate is he's highlighting uh, the fact that in our teaching, in our pedagogy, in some of the fancy, cool terms that he uses— we must not forget that as we raise our kids or teach in a church, we're not just transferring information. We're not just asking kids to memorize things. And no, we're not just little brains on a stick. No, we are, we are affection as well. We are heart, not just mind. And our goal is not just to give kids information or to give adults information for that matter, but to... To, to, to teach their hearts to love, to teach our hearts to love. Again, not just a statement of truth, but the living Christ. And that's an emphasis throughout that book that I, I so value. Uh, I couldn't find my copy of that book this morning, or I'd read you a couple elements uh, that I thought, oh, that's so good. Uh, we we keep our kids in the faith. And it, Smith interacts with that longing of Christian parents. I want to see my kids grow up and be followers of Christ for life. And he points out that sometimes we err on the, 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 thing, the, the brain on a stick idea. If they'll only know certain things, I'll protect them from ever going astray. They'll memorize this catechism. They'll memorize this doctrinal statement. They'll have the whole New Testament memorized. Therefore, they'll be protected from ever going astray. And he points out how that's an error. And then he goes to the other side and he says, some people then uh, pushing back against the brains on a stick idea believe that if we just entertain our kids well enough, if we get them enough cotton candy and bouncers and popcorn, th- they'll see Christianity's fun. And of course, because they have fun, they'll stick around in the faith. And he interacts with both of those approaches to raising kids and says, you know, both of them have things lacking. And again, he's not saying don't teach content, nor is he saying don't have fun. But he's saying that isn't what keeps our kids into faith. It isn't what keeps us into faith either, is just bare facts or just having fun. But he interacts almost in a Jonathan Edwards-esque uh, approach b- about our religious affections and the love of the heart. And he offers uh, his understandings of, of ways in which you can nurture in, in a child or in adults affection for Christ. And those are ways in which I think the book is highly valuable. You are what you love. Again, there are elements there that drive me nuts, and I would certainly word different, but those, I think, are the things that I would would commend to you uh, as a takeaway. And I think that's what Paul's after here in Colossians, is I, I want to encourage you, he says. I'm after something here. I want your hearts to be knit together, and I want you to reach for to achieve, to accomplish. I want you to get a hold and get your arms around the riches of full assurance and understanding, knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a statement of affection. And he's longing for his readers to so long for Christ that they will know him not simply as a statement of faith or a statement of fact, but with with a heart of warmth and a, a heart of devotion. And I think that that's a good thing for all of us. Now, Uh, Again, on your study notes, I I ask you this question that I think is is a a worthy takeaway based on verse four. Paul's saying, I'm telling you this so that you're not gonna be led astray. And I think if our hearts are are wrapped around the heart of Christ, indeed, perhaps less likely to go astray. But I ask this question there from your study notes, is your faith, a child of God, is your faith a a cold, formal, content-heavy faith to the exclusion of I ask to the exclusion of a warm hearted devotion to Christ himself that isn 't to 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 put down content you know me enough to know that I like content and study and facts and creeds and doctrine and so on, but those things, in the absence of warm hearted devotion can create a a a brain on a stick that focuses on being right and sometimes ends up being argumentative and and um Well, less than loving, either to Christ or to people. And I don't think we want to be that as individuals and certainly not as a church. Content, yes. Truth, yes. But but a warm-hearted devotion to Christ must be something we embrace. Now, on your study notes as well, of course, some things to think about in responding to God's word. I look at this text, and Paul, again, he's wrapping up in verses four and five, and he says, I'm telling you all this so that you will not be easily led astray by other people. And he's laying the groundwork for where he's gonna take us in the weeks ahead as, indeed, he, he addresses areas of concern and correction and so on. He's gonna do that. But he lays this important groundwork and says, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ today? Are you reaching for Him? Uh, on your study notes, then, I give you a couple of things about responding to God's Word. And uh, I, I mention here Christ, Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. The reminder of the gospel, He died in our place on the cross of Calvary, paid the debt that we owe because of our sin, covered our sin and our shame before a holy God. And He calls us today to repent of our sin and trust Christ, trust Christ alone as our Savior Redeemer. And then I mention secondly, Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, knows your name today. He, he, he knows your needs. He knows your fears. He knows your failures. And through the faithful presence of the Spirit of God, he is truly Emmanuel, that is God with us. And I mentioned this especially to those of you, and you're not alone, who are fearful these days. There's, there's a normal fear and caution, but, but fear is gripping some of us on a level that is not good. And I, I'm all a fan of washing your hands and, and being careful and being cautious. But, oh, dear people of God, let's not, be, let's not give in to fear, that abject terror that, that forgets about the immediate presence of God among us. Uh, we, we face the concerns and needs of today, but we do so as followers of Jesus, and we walk in faith. And even as in the text, Paul points us to Christ, so I would do the same thing. His presence among us, Emmanuel, he is God with us. And then my final element there, Jesus Christ, our coming Savior. Indeed, he knows what's going on in the world right now. The, the world is not out of his control, whatever you think. The world is not out of his control. Heaven is not in a state of panic today. He is He is now working all things toward the ends that he has ordained and you need not fear that he's taken his hands off the steering wheel of the universe. And I hope that that's not how you view life today. Oh no, God has lost control. Now he has not. He has not lost control. Uh, God is working all things to the end, to the ends that he has ordained. I want to read again for you the Heidelberg Catechism. I want you to, in light of what I have just said, I want you to hear it again. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day, number one. How those framers intended God's people to begin every year. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. I love the question and I love the answer. Indeed, what is your only hope in life and in death? And I hope that that answer as it is framed would be the answer your heart would give. I wanna pray for us, for God's encouragement and care. I'm gonna say just a few words of announcement and then we will conclude our morning together with one of the songs that we sang earlier, kind of framing our service with an atmosphere of hope And encouragement so pray with me please if you would our father how we thank you for the word of god thank you that the apostle paul saw the gospel as worth suffering for and worthwhile always worthwhile because of its effect on the lives of people forgiveness of sins and the hope of life forever with you we're grateful thank you for paul's focus on christ and father may that be ours as well Thank you for doctrinal statements and creeds and comments of truth, as valuable as all those are. But our Father, I pray for each of us that you would prod our hearts toward not only knowing details, but toward the love of Christ, a warm-hearted devotion to the one who is our Savior, who died in our place on the cross, who is a living Savior and Lord. I thank you for these things and pray that you would keep your people this week in the love of Christ, Give them hope and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just a word or two of announcement. Um, Thank you for joining us again by live stream. Of course, we came to you today on three different platforms and I understand all of those are working well and hopefully this will be a better uh, worship experience for us while we must be apart. part. Wanting you to know, of course, looking ahead even as we pursue a study in the book of Colossians. Next Sunday, as you know, is Palm Sunday. And uh, followed, of course, by Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter. And as is our pattern here at Sunset Bible Church, uh, I love to preach sermons on those themes, rich themes from church life. And so with that in mind, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we will be stepping out of our study in Colossians for two weeks. Next Sunday, Palm Sunday, uh, Zechariah nine will be our theme for those three sermons. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, rejoice greatly. So next Sunday, rejoice greatly, your king is coming. Friday evening, Good Friday, rejoice greatly, God's justice is satisfied, looking at Romans chapter three. And then Easter Sunday morning, rejoice greatly, there is hope for the nations, uh, looking at Matthew 28. So you can anticipate those uh, sermons coming uh, your way. Uh, I mentioned we'll be adding Good Friday evening in this format as well. And we want to worship together. Also, during Holy Week, uh, we will be posting daily uh, devotions from your staff. And you can anticipate that more on that next Sunday. But throughout Holy Week, Monday through Saturday mornings, uh, throughout those days, we'll be posting br- just brief uh, words of encouragement and devotion that help us think through. Uh, the activities and scriptures of Holy Week. So we're eager to serve you in those ways. And until we see you again, we pray God's richest blessings on all of you. Let's worship together in song one more time. Pastor Luke.